Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, episode 95, where we discuss a recent report that over half of new condo investors are cash flow negative. I am glad. I know. I am glad I'm not one of those investors, but I am a cash flow positive real estate investor, a real estate broker, and director of economic research at Rare Real Estate. My name is Daniel Foch, and I am joined here by a man you all know and love, a cash positive investor himself with great hair, a mustache, and a mortgage agent with a fancy new title at a company called Land Bank. You are going to have to tell us all what that means, sir, Mr. Nick Hill. Thank you for the lovely introduction, Dan, and I appreciate uh, my title was Mr. Mustache before, but I've, I've graduated from that. And wait a second, I thought it was Executive Global Director of Marketing. You know, we, we all know we love titles. Prestige in Worldwide. That's it. Uh, but yeah, little little teaser here, everybody. We're very excited to announce we now have our own licensed brokerage called Land Bank. It's very exciting for us and the team. Uh, we have an amazing team. We're already working on some very cool and large projects across the country and across North America. Yes, that's right. All the way down to Phoenix, Arizona, even. Our services and expertise include buy and sell side advisory, debt brokerage and private lending, as well as private equity, and just some awesome joint venture opportunities. So stay tuned as we share our journey with Land Bank. But let's get back to it because speaking of new developments, the glory days of easy returns and cash flow are likely over, says the co-author of a report on the cash crunch facing Toronto's condo market. That's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. The report comes from Urban Urbanation, this auto corrected to urbanization, but Urbanation, um, <laughs> Sean Hildebrand and Ben Towel, who you already know we quite like their perspective, although Ben Towel does seem to, to change his perspective pretty, pretty often, um, mm. and conveniently. And we, and we see this with a lot of the reporting agencies. I mean, they want to be ahead of things, but they don't want to induce panic. So, um, let's maybe read some of this article first, shall we? Then we can discuss. For sure. And, you know, just, just in Ben Tal's defense and all the other economists out there, as an economist, it's, it's hard to be proactive, right? You, you're, you're almost reactive to, to what's happening in the general economy. Um, let's also talk about how these articles say that investors are, quote, losing money, but the report says cash flow negative. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's technically the same thing because cash flow negative is unrealized losses, I suppose, until you mm. realize, until you're positive. And, and we're going to talk a lot about the whole scenario, but I don't want to uh, upset any journalists. I, I just, I did find <laughs> that was a bit savage. Um, on the, and it was like every article. So you wouldn't really be nipping. They all said people <laughs> were losing money. Um, and it's, it's a, signal of a narrative shift from my perspective. But who knows, maybe these investors do end up losing money after sunk costs like maintenance fees, etc. But the big thing for me now is how much the narrative is changing. Like when have you seen this headline before? This is like a 2008 headline. This is like a bear market headline for sure. <laughs> 
the research from the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, which you probably know as CIBC, and real estate uh, research firm Urbanation found that 48% of leveraged condo investors who bought pre-construction units to rent out were cash flow positive in 2022. So for the majority of investors, rent generated by newly completed units was lower than mortgage costs, condo fees, and property taxes. This marks a meaningful shift that may potentially signal that a change in investor behavior or investor sentiment is on the horizon. That comes from, again, CIBC's Ben Tal and Urbanation, Sean Hildebrand, that, uh, that they released in a report a few weeks ago. I think it's, it is interesting because if the capital appreciation piece of the puzzle disappears, then all of a sudden we, we would need to see a shift towards things like the type of investing that we're into. And it's funny, like I, I work in the real estate industry and in, in one of the hottest, in one of the hottest markets of, in the world. And a lot of realtors, you know, for the past several years were, it's all buy, sell, invest, right? And you can invest in, in investing, you know. Is that not the real estate bio, right. buy, sell, invest yeah. right there? Yeah, and lease, I guess, too. But, um, you know, it's, it's like investment, buy something, like it meant speculate back then, right? And so, mm. and now it doesn't. And now people are, you know, more and more real estate professionals are becoming attracted to the content that we're putting out because, they realize that a lot of people aren't are, don't want to do that kind of investing anymore, don't want to do speculating anymore because it doesn't work anymore. And it, it barely worked probably for the last little bit. Um, so anyway, I mean, the, the article says that they expect a shift towards negative cash flow to worsen in the years ahead as increasingly new expensive condos pre-sold to investors recently. And we also saw capital costs increase. So if rates stay high, even if they go down a little bit and and values don't recover and rents don't grow substantially um then you know we have a lot of investors who could be in trouble as a lot of these start to reach completion now they add that a reduction in interest rates and further growth in rents will lighten the impact on investors in the years ahead but won't be enough to stop their financial situations from getting worse and and they sort of disqualify the whole thing by saying, you know, it depends. Everything depends on the outlook for prices and the credit environment, which means interest rates, how much it costs to borrow money. And I quote, if investors are able to get financing and prices are rising, they may be encouraged to hold in the rental market, even with that negative cash flow. They feel investors have held off selling because housing supply is constrained and not poised to improve by much. So people see potentially values regrowing. Now, this study found developers have the capacity to deliver no more than roughly 20,000 units per year, which represents marginal growth for a condo stock in the GTA that is approaching a half million units. That piece is really important from my perspective. Um, you know, if if we stop building, you would hope that we'll see deflation or at least disinflation in construction costs, which have been nuts for the past several years. <laughs> um, but also because of the role that condo investors play in the development 
of new housing, which we're going to talk about a lot in this article, because I think it's actually an important mechanical thing for people to understand, especially for people who are listening to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we don't really talk a lot about investing in in pre-construction stuff. We just did our first episode with, with Jordan Skrinko a couple of weeks ago. Definitely check that one out. Um, but, you know, these investors really do play an important role in the housing supply chain. And, and so we'll discuss about that. Yeah, so we're going to talk a bit more about but that. Let, but let's just finish this article here first. It does finish off by saying, however, if investors become unwilling to buy into pre-sales, that's pre-construction, um, new condo demand will shrink along with new construction, deliveries, and ultimately rental supply. That is not a good thing. It is. It like I mean, it, it does support the fundamentals that supply. There is a supply and demand imbalance for people like us who, who invest in real estate. So it could, you know, it could create some short-term volatility, like short-term headwinds, but then long-term tailwinds if you're in a market that has a big gap in the supply. Because remember, it takes like five to six years to build these high-rise projects. And maybe that gap will be filled in the meantime. This is what I'm really thinking and hoping happens. That gap, gap will be filled in the meantime by your kind of missing middle product, by your small multifamily product, by the product that a lot of us who listen to this show and, and want to you know, get involved in the development and addition of units are going to be um, pushing for. The report from Ben Tal and Hildebrandt comes after rentals.ca research revealed average advertised rental prices in April were up 20% from pandemic lows of April 2021. So 48% of investors are cash negative, eh, Dan? Yeah, absolutely brutal violation of Warren Buffett's rule number one and number two. For those of you that forget the rules, here's a quick reminder. Rule number one, do not lose money. Dan, what's rule number two again? Never forget rule number one. And <laughs> now now a lot of people are saying, oh, you're misunderstanding the investment. We're not losing money. It's for capital appreciation. And we just talked about this on our most recent episode about cap rates. Um, I invest in, in rental properties, income properties that are cash flow positive, and they also experience capital appreciation. It's not like it's mutually exclusive, like just because a property is um, cash flowing that it won't experience capital appreciation. And I, I would say that the rate at which the Canadian population is growing, you might actually see more capital appreciation in some of these more affordable markets because the, tap, the, the more expensive markets are almost tapped out based on a wage perspective of how much they can appreciate in value. Like it wouldn't surprise me if housing was unaffordable, like and and heading towards not maybe not Toronto prices, but GTA prices everywhere in Canada eventually. So you might actually have better mm -hmm. capital appreciation growth in these tertiary markets where you can get cash flow. But this is due to a phenomenon called cap rate compression, which happens during bull markets or markets where you know more and more investor activity is happening. We mentioned this in episode 94 about cap rates. So what you have is, you know, maybe an inflation hedged savings vehicle at, at best and, and a purely speculative money pit at worst. And, and the <laughs> truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, if your investment is losing money and maybe it's time we start asking ourselves why potentially thousands of investors in Canada have an incentive to lose money or be cash flow negative, there might be a little bit of a broken system. And we've talked about things like money laundering or cat, uh, tax loss harvesting or just you know sheltering from 
whatever foreign governments, et cetera. Like there's a lot of, I think behind the curtain stuff that happens in Canadian real estate that is worth noting because it has, it would have an impact on house prices and, and asset value. Yeah, for sure. So, so let's make this easy. Let's just do some like quick cash flow math on this to understand the cash flow in a typical unit like this. So Dan, let's unpack this a bit and maybe even do some, some fact checking here. Sure. So for ease of math, let's assume a new condo is worth a million dollars. And we know from a report that 75% of investors are buying new units with mortgages. So let's assume that it's with a mortgage. So we can also assume that they want to maximize their leverage point and are buying with an 80% loan to value. So 20% down. Yeah, that's fair. Let's use that assumption. So 80% of a million is $800,000. So your mortgage payment, let's say at a 5% rate on a 30-year amortization for $800,000 is around $4,200 a month. Okay. And and what would that $1 million condo rent for? Like, Let's be really generous here just because I'm kind of being lazy and don't want to do a ton of math, but let's say it would rent for $4,200 a month. My guess is it would probably be less than that. It would probably be closer to $3,500. Yeah, I mean, forty two hundred. I live in downtown Toronto. I can tell you, forty two hundred is is generous for sure. But again, this is a podcast. Let's let's keep the math easy. So the rents break even against the mortgage payment. That's good, right? Yeah, but then you have to add in all these other costs. So and maybe we just go super baseline. So assume the tenant pays the utilities. So no utilities, condo fees. Let's say four hundred dollars a month because it's a new condo. And there's not a lot of maintenance yet. Um, and and that, again, is very conservative, I would say. And assume mm-hmm. that covers all maintenance. Um, so there's no other maintenance costs. Taxes, let's say 200 bucks a month, maybe. So in an absolute best case scenario, you're losing $600 a month. Okay, but we know that half of these investors are cash negative. So if we went with the $3,500 monthly rent, you'd be closer to a Delta cash flow negative instead. Yeah. So I guess you would need the property to appreciate by like $16,000 per year for the investment to break even, assuming no opportunity cost um, of the money, et cetera. That's 1.5% per year, which is actually pretty realistic. But if you're buying a pre-construction today, you're buying it typically slightly above today's market value. So it isn't always a guarantee that you're going to get that level of appreciation. Yeah, for sure. And just to have a better understanding of that, go back and listen to our episode where we do a full deep dive in pre-construction, how to choose your, how to choose your developer, what the actual process looks like and why you are paying a premium for that pre-construction. Anyways, let's get back to it. Um, you also keep the principal pay down. So the mortgage pays about 65,000 in principal down over that five year term, uh, a portion of which is paid by the tenant. And I, I guess from that, the the principal pay down portion, um, it's not that compelling. Like it's going to pay what one hundred ninety k interest over a five year term. Ouch! So I mean, who really wins here, right? The bank. I mean, 
that's that you know the house always wins right is that did i just come up with something the house yeah always wins. yeah nobody's ever no, said that one before that's so, vegas no no i can't take credit for that one so <laughs> so really these investors are are not losing money per se if the property goes up in value they're deferring capital appreciation and basically getting a savings vehicle if they're putting money into it yeah i mean see my thought is like why not just buy something that cash flows that will also appreciate in value and you don't need to be pumping money into it on a monthly basis just to keep it alive. Yeah, those are my thoughts as well. Um, but they I better guess because we buy yeah. property together. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, in the interest of trying to explore the full discussion, I would imagine probably the, the big compelling advantage is that it's a maintenance free life as an investor um, when you're buying a condo. Yeah, I mean, we did mention opportunity cost and, you know, comparing against other investments, though. Yeah, so to understand how to compare property against other opportunities, you would have to use a DCF or discounted cash flow. The purpose of a DCF analysis is to estimate the money an investor would receive from an investment adjusted for the time value of money. Yeah, we'll probably have to do a full episode on on that sometime. For sure. Yeah, I think I think doing an episode on discounted cash flow and analysis would really help uh, a lot of the listeners. And uh, let's try and give it a, a bit of a sales pitch here quickly, maybe for anybody who wants to get ahead in this education. It's a good core piece of building a, a good pro forma analysis. Ah, pro forma. You you speak Latin, right? Can you care to translate that, my? My esteemed colleague. So uh, pro forma means for the sake of form or as a matter of form. When it appears in financial statements, it indicates that a method of calculating financial results using certain projections or presumptions has been used. So just more good old financial jargon rooted in Latin. Love it. Uh, Basically, pro forma is an Excel spreadsheet that uh, that just you know sounds fancy because you've tied a Latin word to it and you can sound smarter by saying pro forma. Uh, yeah, that's actually a really good summary of it, honestly. I think I'm finally on to you and all your finance bros just speaking Latin, so us regular people uh, think you're smart here. I didn't. Uh, I didn't come up with the term, so I'm gonna, you can't, gonna bow out here. You can't hide behind those Patagonia vests forever. <laughs> okay. Okay. So. So. Uh, DCF analysis is a useful tool for evaluating real estate investments, especially if you want to compare them to other investments. It helps investors understand how much money they can make from an investment by considering the time value of money. So one benefit of a DCF analysis is that it accounts for the fact that the money received in the future is worth less than the money received today. I love that. I'm going to read that one more time. It accounts for the fact that the money received in the future is worth less than the money received today. This is because of things like inflation and opportunity cost of capital. By discounting future cash flows, DCF analysis gives a more accurate picture of the investment's profitability and risk. And you discount those cash flows based on other things you could do with the same money today. For example, putting it in a GIC at 5%. So DCF analysis also lets investors consider different scenarios and variables. Real estate investors can have various sources of income like rent and property appreciation. The DCF analysis allows investors to model different assumptions and predict cash flows in different market conditions. This helps evaluate the investment's potential. 
furthermore, discounted cash flow helps identify how sensitive an investment is to changes in key factors. So this is by adjusting things like rental rates or expenses. And and again, it spreads the analysis over time. So you're looking at not like the last episode that we just did on cap rates, which is one single point in time, basically when you buy that property. Um, it spreads it out over time and kind of looks at it from when you buy the asset all the way to when you sell the asset. Um, and so you can see how it affects the investment's overall value. This helps to manage risks and understand your sensitivities and ultimately make better decisions. Totally. And remember, time plays an extremely important role in in real estate and investing overall. Remember, remember when I came up with me, what I came up with, it's not time it's not time in the market. It's time in the market. Pretty good one, eh, Dan? Great one. Very Last, lastly, lastly uh, discount cash flow analysis allows for comparisons between investment options by using constant criteria like net present value or internal rate of return, which we'll do full episodes explaining those return metrics. Investors can compare and prioritize different opportunities based off of those expected returns. Damn, that was actually a, a pretty great summary. I'm proud of us. Yeah, of course. So obviously these condo investors did not use the discounted cash flow analysis. I think it's safe to assume they did not do a discounted cash flow analysis. And if they did, their assumptions were potentially very wrong. Now, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that these money losing investors or speculators are actually providing a social service. How you may ask? Well, the majority of these units became rental housing stock and everyone's like, well, we need to build more rental housing. It is really funny because it's the same people who hate investors and landlords that, <laughs> you know, and that are cheering on articles like this about them losing money that are the people who are saying, oh, we need to build more rental housing too. So um, you see, we've just learned that it's not profitable to build rental housing. If, if it was, then these individuals who are buying the stock wouldn't be losing money. So developers couldn't do it without all these condo investors. Exactly. A developer can't go build a money losing building right? No bank is going to lend on that. They would have to increase their down payments or their equity or or cash in the deal in order to make those numbers work. So by losing money, these investors spread out or I, I'm going to use a scary word here, Be but care, they, careful here. <laughs> they socialize the economic losses from a, a project like this. Um, you're taking the losses from the project and putting them onto society through a, a investor and then through somebody's rent. This absorbs the risk and spreads it across a number of different people. Now, in order for a project like that to be viable as a purpose-built rental, the developer would have to put 35% equity as opposed to the 15% they put when it's built as a condo and funded with investor deposits. That's according to research by our friends at Oak Bank Capital and Well-Grounded Real Estate. I guess we should maybe use this as an opportunity to talk about the capital stack, eh? Yeah, for sure. So the capital stack refers to the layers of capital being stacked that go into purchasing and operating a commercial real estate investment. It outlines who will receive income and profits generated by that property and in what order. The capital stack also defines who has the first right to foreclose on the asset as collateral in the event the equity owner defaults on the mortgage. 
So the capital stack is typically comprised of four sections in the following order, common equity, preferred equity, mezzanine debt, and senior debt. And the best way to say that is like equity is your down payment. Mezzanine debt would be like a B mortgage or, or a second mortgage, sorry, that you would get. So you have um, down payment, second mortgage, first mortgage. And then, and then senior debt is your rich European uncle that, that funds exactly. the whole thing, right? Yes. <laughs> so although common equity is listed first in the capital stack, it holds the lowest priority, meaning common equity lenders are paid last. Senior debt at the bottom of the capital stack holds the strongest priority. So this is, again, your first mortgage, meaning that those lenders are the first to be paid. This is also called your first mortgage or mortgage in first position. So Dan, where would investors' deposits go in this capital stack? Yeah. So this is where the mechanics are are important to understand. Um, And I touched on this briefly when we did our episode with Jordan Skrinko and had some people who asked me to elaborate on this a little bit. So in Ontario and similar in most places in in Canada... um, and, and in some places in the U.S., like Miami sells um, pre, pre-construction units the way that we do. But New York doesn't, as an example. They spec build condo buildings because they have exceptionally strong capital markets and people who are willing to yellow and build a billion-dollar building before they sell it. So in, in Ontario, Terion insures deposits on new homes. So condominium deposit insurance is what this is called. This insurance is needed to allow residential condominium developers to access and utilize purchasers' deposits as a source of project financing. So the um, I think that this comes from Westmount, um, who specializes in deposit insurance for commercial projects. Um, they So basically, once the deposits are insured, you as a developer can actually use those to be considered as project equity because the owners... Not equity that you can take out until you've delivered all the units and sold them to the people, but um, the owners are protected from losses. So as a developer, you can now, let's say, lever lever up against those. Is that lever up and bro down? Is yeah, that- that's an investment strategy. Is that Latin as well? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and Dan said it right. That piece of information comes from Westmount Guarantee right from their website. And they are pretty qualified to discuss as they have $1.5 billion in active Tarion bonds issued, $5.53 billion of active deposit insurance facilities, and $2.85 billion of purchaser deposits working for the developers right now. It is worth noting that we both mentioned Terion in there. Most people know that Terion provides builder warranties on new homes, basically like a car warranty, but also let's just clarify the role of Terion in the new home deposits as well. Nice. Is this a dictionary segment right here? It's a, yeah, something like that. Sure. The Nick, <laughs> Nick Cyclopedia. From the Terion website, deposit protection takes stress out of buying new homes. So buying a new build home or condominium is a big decision and your investment is quickly made very real when you plop down a hefty deposit to secure your purchase. And just like that, homes deposits have risen significantly in price. So under Ontario's new home warranty and protection plan that is administered by Terion, the deposit is protected. So even better, this coverage has recently been increased and expanded, offering more protections for consumers and greater peace of mind for those who are shopping for a new home. 
here's what you need to know about the deposit coverage in Ontario from the Tarion website. So number one, what is deposit protection, Nick? Deposit protection covers you if you've paid a deposit towards the purchase price of a new home, but your purchase is not completed because the builder goes bankrupt or maybe fundamentally breaches your purchase agreement in some way. While these cases are rare, we have seen them happen, and it's good to know that you have some protection if it does happen. You can also claim deposit protection if you exercise a statutory right to terminate the purchase agreement. If for some reason your builder cannot or will not return your deposit, you can submit a claim to Tarion. And deposits on freehold homes. If you've signed your purchase agreement for your freehold home before January 1st of 2018, your deposits protected by Tarion up to a maximum of $40,000. And after that date, your deposit coverage depends on the purchase price of the home. So if the freehold home is 600K or less, it's insured up to 60 grand. And if it's more than 600,000, it's protected for 10% of the purchase price up to a maximum of 100,000. Now let's talk about deposits on condos. So there are two levels of deposit protection when purchasing a condo unit. First, builders of condominiums are required by the law, the Condominium Act, to place all deposits in trust, which means your deposit is fully protected. If your purchase agreement is terminated by the builder, your deposit must be returned to you in full within 10 days. Secondly, if for some reason your deposit was not placed in trust or if not returned to you by the builder, Tarion provides deposit protection of up to $20,000. And similar thing works for upgrades and extras. So if you purchase some upgrades and extras like hardwood floors, quartz, granite countertops, tiling, upgraded cabinetry, um, if you spent money on those things, you can rest easy knowing that deposit protection was also expanded to cover any of those payments as well. Okay, that's that's all fine and dandy, but can we please get back to how the heck almost half of condo investors are losing money? Yeah, so let's do this. From the report referenced by a lot of these articles entitled 2023 GTA Condo Investment Report by Urban Nation and CIBC Economics with Sean Hildebrand and Benjamin Tao. Yeah, I mean, the report is really cool and it covers some really interesting other stuff. Uh, there's a bunch of charts in here and we look, we're looking at chart two that shows us that the GTA has the fewest completions per person among the top five cities. Calgary comes in first at 8.5 new units per 1,000 people being completed today. Somehow those numbers still aren't adding up. And Edmonton comes uh, in a close second at just under eight new units per 1,000 people. Hey, remember when we talked about how Alberta was the only province that could keep up with their housing demand enough to maintain affordability? That's what this looks like. So Vancouver is in third place with just over 7,000 units per 1,000 being built. Montreal is at six. And Toronto is way at the bottom with just over four units per 1,000 people in population. It's crazy. Um, So investors in the condo market... In the GTA, the condo market does all the heavy lifting for the housing supply, where condos represent the highest share of residential construction in the country. Investor demand is therefore critical importance for the supply outlook. If investors aren't buying, developers won't be building. Let's let's focus on that for a second. If investors aren't buying, developers won't be building. Boom, we're deeper into the housing crisis. 
More purpose-built rentals are needed, but we are a long way from being able to rely on traditional rental units to drive construction in Toronto. And a big piece of that is the economics, right? We explained the equity needed. If you're going to do a CMHC MLI select loan, which we've done full episodes on, by the way, to build like using CMHC's construction program to try and build one of these massive high rise towers. When you add up all of these factors, the land cost, the construction cost in a market like Toronto or Vancouver, where it's more expensive to build because labor is more expensive and materials are more expensive and there's more in- infrastructure interruptions, et cetera. Um, you know, when you do all of these things and you go through your pro forma, which we described earlier, um, uh, yes, you're going to say, I don't have enough money. If I rent this out as a developer, I don't have enough money to cover the debt. And CMHC is not going to lend you the money if you can't cover the debt. And so, so the deals, you know, a lot of people say in quotation marks, they don't pencil out, right? They don't work. And so this is in order for new condo investing to continue to make economic sense over the long term, new condo prices should generally grow in line with resale prices and rents, they say in the report. Um, recently, however, we saw a big deviation, which could make it increasingly difficult for investors to earn those returns by having the value grow. In the past five years, new condo prices increased 58%, nearly double the growth in condo resale prices and rents. Wow. Um, you know, these increasingly higher priced condo units will be reaching completion in a higher interest rate environment therefore requiring larger financial obligations from those trying to close. The question is, how will this affect the cash flow position of these condo investors? And to what extent will this change the behavior of investors who are arguably the single most important market segment for housing supply? There's a nice pat so- on the back for them, eh? <laughs> We like developers. On I guess the show. if they're losing, well, it's the investors that they're saying who are arguably the single most important. And it's funny. We I guess also I mean, like investors on are, the show. They are ripping into them pretty hard in the report by saying they're all cash flow negative. So I guess they owed it to them to call them important too. Now, exactly, Dan. But to understand this, let's drill into some of the data around this. Yeah. So the economics of condo investment is another section that they have in this report. And it basically, it shows their rent data from urbanation for condo investor purchase units. And they matched it with similar or comparable registered sale price and mortgage information obtained from Terranet. And they were able to shed some light on the financial situation of investors. The report goes on to say that they found the strong majority of 72% of condo rental investors buy new as opposed to resale units. The main advantage of investing in rental units through new condos is the time it takes for the development to occur. The average time between a pre-sale launch and the completion is approximately five years and that five years is growing as we've, you know, deal with supply shortage and skilled labor shortages. And that's been a historically been sufficient time for resale. It is really interesting from my perspective, given we just had a conversation with Jordan about how many, how in most cases, cases you would actually be making a, a, you know, on paper, a better investment with resale. And I know a lot of people like to demonize investors and maybe they should be happy in this case, but you know, these money losing investments are creating rental stock. Yeah. And I mean, why demonize them? Like they're losing money. Shouldn't that make you happy if you hate investors? And by the way, if you hate investors and you're listening to the show, 
what are you doing here? Yeah. 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 I mean, way to kick them while they're down. Um, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is again, we, when we talked about this, we, you know, these money losing investors are actually providing a social service. If a developer were trying to build the same high rise building as a purposeful rental, which is where they own the whole building and rent it out, it wouldn't be viable because it would lose money. However, if they build it as a condo building and sell those units to condo investors, the buyers of the units are the ones losing money. The units still have the same cost to build. They still rent out for the same amount, but it takes those losses and spreads them out over a large group of investors who all go get their own mortgages rather than the developer needing to go and get a long-term mortgage to hold the project on their own. This is called socializing the losses. Ooh, wow. So a developer would need 35% of the total project cost in cash in cash equity to fund a purpose-built rento. But as Dan was saying, as a condo, they only need 15% and the rest is covered by buyer deposits. So when you go and buy that pre-construction, that goes in a fund with all of the other people that have done the same thing and that's what the developer uses to build. It also helps keep monthly housing costs affordable for those residents. If everyone living in these condos had to buy the units, it would cost them more to own the units than it currently does to rent the units. Based off of this math, the socialization of these losses allows rental housing to get built where probably otherwise wouldn't. So if so, if you and your buddies can still afford to rent on King West, thank a money losing investor today. <laughs> or I guess thank a cash negative investor. And, and again, you know, we're kind of finishing summarizing the episode here, but we should start asking why I think, you know, it might be better for us to, to ask policymakers and, and our government why people might have an incentive to lose money or be cash flow negative in Canadian real estate. Maybe we shouldn't have this insane price growth environment. Maybe we have some some bad policy. You know, We've created the supply demand mismatch that's becoming really problematic and creating and exacerbating a crisis and there's no sign of stopping it. Um, maybe there's sheltering, maybe tax loss harvesting, maybe money laundering, capital appreciation or whatever it is, but something's broken here. And, and that, I think we should be asking why above all. Yeah. I mean, this also kind of lends itself to the argument as to kind of why we think that maybe renting your primary residence kind of makes sense in some situations. For sure. You, you can get a condo downtown for less than it costs to own. So if you want to be close to the action, close to work, et cetera, it actually makes more financial sense for you to rent that unit than own it. And you can allocate your capital to investing where you can get better returns since we just learned that these probably have a negative return. And, you know, it, it, if you can do a discounted cash flow analysis and say, Oh, I can go make whatever 10% in the stock market and I would make the same amount or less and it's going to burn a hole in my pocket on a condo, then yeah, I mean, it would make, and this is, you know, I played this game for a while. I'm I'm still playing it. And I mean, I didn't think we were going to get all the way to, you know, rent versus own on your primary residence on, on this episode here. But it's a good application for that discussion that we just had because it's economically more sensible to rent if it's downtown, if it's a downtown condo, basically. And again, not in every situation, but it does you know, seem subjectively, like it, I mean, like it, it just, does seem like it we, overall. Yeah. Yeah. We were just shown that the economics of owning, like if, if something rents for less than it costs to own, then it makes more sense to rent it on a sunk cost basis. Like I think unless, unless the only, your only ability to earn a return is through Canadian real estate, right. Or, or through capital appreciation, which I, it, that is the case for some people. Like some people can't, 
make a, a return elsewhere. And, and like, that's why a lot of people end up listening to podcasts like this, right? Because they don't, they're not, we're not having success in the stock market as an example. So I thought it was for my definitions in your Latin translations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just a bonus. Um, okay. We're going to finish off strong here. We have got a juicy deal out on the East Coast, a triplex in New Brunswick. So first and foremost, let's ask ourselves, what is New Brunswick known for? Well, I did not know this, but New Brunswick has more than 60 lighthouses and is famous for its inland lighthouse system that dots its inland rivers. Also, the Bay of Fundy is a pristine sanctuary for all kinds of rare and unusual creatures. Its capital city is Fredericton. Its biggest city is Moncton. Total population is around 825,000. And the average home price in New Brunswick, Canada stood at about 290,000 Canadian dollars in 2022. So as of May 2023, the average one bedroom rent was 1100 bucks, up 16%. The average two bedroom was 1350, which is up 17% from the year before, and the average three bedroom was 1725, which is just a 3% increase from the previous year. So this property has one one bedroom and two two bedrooms, but since it's in a rural area and already occupied, we're going to make some assumptions first we'll assume that they are at market rents. Right. So based off of those numbers, market rent scenario would equal $3,800 a month. Below market rent scenario, we lower the one bed to eight fifty, dollars and the two two beds to about 1000 to bring it down over a th- just about just under $1,000 story to $2,850. Dan, I'm going to go through the description of the property, and then why don't you take us away with the scenario number one, scenario number two. Um, this is a really cool property listed for $289,000 at triplex at 3358 route 535. Oh man, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. Is that cocaine, New Brunswick? Cocaine, cocaine. I'd sorry for everyone that lives in the area. If you're listening, uh, beautiful, large home on a corner lot that literally is probably, I don't know less than half a kilometer from the ocean, um, three hot water tanks, parking for everyone. Each unit has their own bathroom, living room, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's only been on the market for four days. It's over 3,000 square feet. And this is great. The location description, five kilometers past the church on the right-hand side. I almost feel like, you know, wait till the bees are buzzing, turn right, and then take the yellow brick road, 10 steps, and there you are. Dan, walk us through scenario number one, which is market rents, and then we'll look at scenario number two, which is, again, assumed below market rents. This is because people are already living there, and they're likely not paying, quote unquote, market rent. So what do we look like in the first year in the first scenario? Yeah. So if you're at um, market rents, you'd be at a 9.82% cap rate, uh, 30, assuming you're, uh, what was the leverage point here? Um, 80% loan to value, you got um, 36% cash on cash return, which is wild. Um, And then same thing again, if you're below market rent, um, so just drop your income, but uh, your rent down from 3,800 to 2,850. Cash on cash is still 24% and your cap rate drops to just under 7% at 6.68%. Pretty good deal. You like yeah. it? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's all right. I, I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out my thought on like rural because we're seeing this big push towards like um, urbanization. And I'm still like trying to figure out my thought. And it, it, it might just be like that I don't understand these markets a ton. It, 
but like how a lot of these more rural or suburban markets will perform over the next 10 to 20 years. Cause it is like, that's why we are buying real estate with a 10 to 20 year outlook. And that's where it, it kind of has a, a lot. You have a lot of time and demographic change and like you have a full dying off of an entire generation to take place in that period of time. Yeah, really interesting stuff. You know, I just love the fact that the ocean's basically in your backyard. I'm a sucker for water. Yeah, it is a really nice view there. Um, should we read read a quick review here before we uh, we yeah, go? Yeah, lined up. Um, I actually just uh, I just saw this one because it uh, and it's from New Brunswick, which is really interesting. It says, "Hey guys, love it's it. Colin from New Brunswick. I just got my tickets for the meetup in Toronto after hearing about it yes. on TCI. As a newer real estate professional and a longtime listener of both you guys and Simone and Braden, I'm super excited to connect and hear you guys." speak on these topics in person keep up the awesome work our country needs more financially informed individuals great review looking forward to meeting you colin thank you for showing up at the top of the reviews while i was clicking to go find one and promoting our event for us so everybody remember that we have an event the links in the show notes if you want to come meet us and and now we have this as people fly, for flying all over the country to to come out so um, really looking forward to that, and um, and also share this if you can't leave a review if you're not on Apple Podcasts if you're on Spotify, we will settle for it. You don't have to leave us a review if you're listening on Spotify. Just hit the share button and sh- send this to via text or email or whatever uh, fax even if you want to send a link via fax <laughs> to to somebody just one person. If all of you do that, all of you Spotify listeners do that, we will have a huge increase in the amount of people who listen to that sh- this show and then Colin will be happy because we will have more financially informed individuals in our country. So it's all for you, Colin. Appreciate it for Colin. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.